So the doors close, we enter an airlock, boom, we go down a tube. The tube has a vacuum in it. It's not a perfect vacuum, but it's perfect enough mm-hmm. uh, vacuum. And what happens after 25 miles an hour, the pod levitates, uh, the little wheels fold in, and it goes down the middle of the tube, held in place by electromagnets, mm-hmm. uh, at up to 500 miles an hour. Not having enough work. Climate change. Blended finance. AI. Uh, shortages of fresh water. Energy transition. Large-scale social disorder. Antibiotic-resistant diseases. Education. Deployment of private capital for social goods. Quantum computing. Hello and welcome to the Future of Business podcast from Saeed Business School. I'm Emily Barron and each week I host a conversation on a topic that will define the future of business and wider society, speaking to experts from Oxford University, leading business people and entrepreneurs. The way we travel has a profound impact on both how and where we live. Currently, there are competing visions of the future of transport. One, advocated by industry heavyweights, including Elon Musk, is that we still travel in conventional vehicles, but that that time is now productive. We work, eat, sleep in our cars without having to worry about driving. The alternative is hyper-fast travel, either over or underground. To understand what this might look like, Today, I'm speaking to Nick Earle from Hyperloop One. Virgin Hyperloop One is the company leading the development of Hyperloops, and they recently signed a contract in India for a link that would connect Mumbai and Pune in around 25 minutes. Hi, my name is Nick Earle. I'm the Senior Vice President for Virgin Hyperloop One, the company that's uh, building a new mode of transportation that I'm sure we're going to be talking about. I'm based in the UK. And I've worked for them for two years, but I've got a 30-plus year uh, track record in IT technology. I've worked for three startups, and I've worked for two very big companies, Hewlett-Packard and uh, Cisco Systems. So I'm, a, I'm an IT guy, now trying to reinvent transportation. Okay, so the Hyperloop. As you said to me earlier, when you did a previous podcast, you managed to crash the website because so many people were looking uh, and interested in, in the Hyperloop. And we hear a lot about it, but we like to make things very simple. Um, so if, if you're you were talking going, to the right people. <laughs> if you were trying to, uh, or going to explain the Hyperloop to a 10-year-old, how would you explain what the Hyperloop is? You know, Emily, it's funny you should answer that. I have actually done an event okay. for 10-year-olds. <laughs> oh, so cool. I could start off by... It's like, I, I did an event recently at the National Geographic Society in London, and it was sort of TED for kids. Cool. Really great idea. Um, and um, the average age was 10 years old. I didn't know you were going to say that. And to this day, after giving hundreds of speeches, uh, the single best question I ever got asked about the Hyperloop was from a 10-year-old girl, and I'll repeat it now. I was talking about how HS2... Our project in the UK to build a upgrade the rail system is going to cost 100 billion pounds, and it's going to take 17 years. And it, you know, at the end of the day, what do we get? Another train. Uh, and I said, well, you know, why don't we spend 50 billion pounds and get something that's four times faster and completely greener and and has all these benefits, etc., etc., etc. And a hand went up, and this 10-year-old girl said, if you had 50 billion pounds, would you spend it on a hyperloop? <laughs> And, and I thought about it, I thought, that is the single best question I've ever been asked. And because kids are wonderful, they have no filter. They right. just ask you the question. And the way I, I paused 
probably for what was a little too long. And I said, well, first of all, if I had 50 billion pounds, I probably wouldn't be standing here. I'd probably be doing something else. But if I had 50 billion, if I could reframe the question, if I had 50 billion pounds and I had to spend it on a transportation system, then um, then yes, I, I would. So w- what is it? Transport is terrible. We all know it. It's, it's terrible and it's getting worse. And I don't have to give examples because everybody knows it. In particular, trains uh, are still steel on steel, steel wheels on steel rails, uh, which was a system invented in 1814. What I say to children is name me one other area of your life that has been unaffected by digitization. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids are growing up with the, with the iPhone. They're, they're growing up with Netflix. Um, they're growing up with all of this amazing content and all these amazing capabilities, and then they get on a train. So what Hyperloop is, it's a cross between an autonomous car and a spaceship. Right. And essentially, you uh, book a journey through your phone, and let's say you get on the pod. The vehicle's called a pod. Uh, You're going to go to Edinburgh. I'm going to go to Leeds. We get in different pods. The pods aren't connected together. They're virtually coupled. Right. Um, So the doors close. We enter an airlock. Boom. We go down a tube. The tube has a vacuum in it. It's not a perfect vacuum, but it's perfect enough Mm -hmm. uh, vacuum and what happens after 25 miles an hour the pod levitates uh, the little wheels fold in and it goes down the middle of the tube held in place by electromagnets Mm -hmm. uh, at up to 500 miles an hour Uh, and then when it gets to the destination my pod switches off to Leeds your pod carries on and eventually you arrive in Edinburgh so it's direct to destination so unlike a train High-speed train, high-speed rail is only high-speed when it's moving, but it still has to stop. There's a timetable for trains. There's no timetable for the Hyperloop. It leaves like an Uber. It leaves when you're ready. Okay. And as a result of that, it's kind of like a physical version of the Internet. So when I say to 10-year-olds, well, it it sort of works like the Internet. They go, oh, like the Internet. So in other words, it comes to me. Right. And I use my phone to book it. And uh, I can go anywhere I want. And I say, yeah, that's, that's exactly um, how it works. And, you know, there's no paper ticket. There's no timetable. Uh, there's no stopping where everybody else wants to stop. And at the end of the day, it can inter- at the end of the journey, it could interoperate with an autonomous car uh, and take you the last mile. Or if you're a parcel, you could have a drone at the beginning and a drone at the end. Mm-hmm. So you could deliver all of these Amazon Prime parcels Mm -hmm. that are exploding as they kill the retail industry and all of those white vans come off the road and then the final thing you say to them is by the way it's carbon free it's carbon free and then they go well why haven't we implemented it and that's a very good question that is a very good question so we're going to come on to those i just want to ask a few more questions about the technology because it's really interesting how is it carbon free okay so first of all it's it's fully electric right There's no carbon fuels. Secondly, we take power off the grid. Uh, So you plug it into the grid. So, for instance, you could could buy renewable energy. Mm -hmm. But let's just say ordinary electricity. We step it up to a certain uh, voltage frequency uh, in order to make the levitation system work. We have a linear motor, which is the same as a a rotary motor that we all recognize from our physics courses. But instead of it going round and round and round, it goes forward, linear motor forward. Uh, when it gets to 25 um, uh, kilometers per hour, it levitates. It creates a electromagnetic differential, which actually causes the the pod to lift. Now, uh, the way I explain this, I'll go back to the uh, the 10-year-old if I can. Yeah. The way I explain Please this do. is that if you think, 
if you think, you know, why do airplanes take off? Which is something that still to this day, after hundreds of flights, still I still think that. Well, the reason is because the air goes fa- they have forward propulsion, mm-hmm. and the air goes faster over that little curve at the top of the wing than it goes underneath. Mm-hmm. It creates a, p- a physical pressure, mm-hmm. an air pressure differential, which causes lift. We create electromagnetic differential, okay. which causes it to lift. So, so once it lifts, we turn all the power off. There's no air in the tube, so it glides. It's like then it's a spaceship. Turns yeah, that out, is really cool. That is really <laughs> cool. Uh, turns out now what we have to do is keep it keep it in exactly the middle of the tube, on the horizontal and the vertical plane, which we do with with um, electromagnetic capabilities. But it turns out that we believe you'd only need a repeater station. Uh, to give it another propulsion, another boost, about every 20, 25 kilometers. Um, so it only uses electricity to it, uh, initially accelerate it. Once you get to the velocity you want, the power goes off. There's power in the pod, lights, cooling, heating, uh, power for your iPad, uh, but that's just like a jet aircraft. But outside the pod, there's no power. And then when it breaks... Uh, it, it uses regenerative braking, like a Tesla. So it generates electricity, and we actually use something which many of your listeners will know what it is, is eddy current braking. Right. Um, which uh, essentially, if you if you hold two really powerful magnets and, and you hold them a certain way, and you 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 um, move them past each other, you feel a bit of friction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the eddy the eddy current effect. Got it. So we use eddy current braking. So on a on a five hundred kilometer journey to net it out, we would use electricity for about ten percent of the journey. So it's not completely green, but it's certainly about ten x greener than any other existing form of transport. In the Middle East, where we're very active, because I run all the worldwide go to market. I think I've done 15 trips to Dubai. Uh, in the Middle East, of course, with a few solar panels. Not not a, a, an opportunity we have here in the UK on this snowy day in Oxford, but in other parts of the world with a few solar panels, you can actually make it net energy positive. In other words, it can be the world's first transportation system that generates energy uh, through solar panels, for example. One, I just wanted to ask you a little bit, jumping back to the individual experience. So I book it on my phone. Do I go to a Hyperloop station? Do I can't yes. get out, out of yeah. the Hyperloop station? Yeah. So let's talk through it. Um, let's just take the first version of the technology, which is uh, forget the autonomous cars. Sure. You're not a parcel. Uh, so forget the drone. Um, let's say you go to a station. By the way, we don't call it a station. We call it a portal. Um, much because, cooler. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is much cooler. Uh, but also, think of what a railway station looks like. I mean, mm-hmm. these things are about 100 to 200 acres. All these tracks side by side. Sure. Um, Hyperloop doesn't need any of that. It needs a tube. Right. And the biggest issue we, we've got is actually just uh, having enough boarding platforms mm-hmm. so people can board concurrently. Sure. Because the issue is the elapsed journey time, not the point-to-point journey time. Mm-hmm. The biggest uh, a component of time for a journey is actually how long it takes people to get on and off the pod. But you can solve that by having multiple parallel platforms, platforms at different levels, underground, uh, mm-hmm. like the London Underground, mm-hmm. when, you, when you switch lines, you yeah. put it that way. Okay, so you walk... Um, or you cycle uh, to the station, you you, you, you um, uh, leave your bike there, you walk in, your phone says go to gate 37, because mm-hmm. remember you're going to Edinburgh. Gate 37 is a, uh, behind gate 37 is one pod that mm-hmm. takes about eight people. Okay. If there are other people who are going to Edinburgh at that exact time, they get in the pod with you. Analogy being like a ski cabin that's going up to the top yeah. of the mountain. 
there's another pod behind you, but it's not connected to you. Mm-hmm. Okay, in this case, that pod could be me going to Leeds, and we'll do a high-speed switch. Engineers always ask us, how can you do that? Because you can't have anything that physically moves at 500 miles an hour. But we believe we know how to do high-speed switching, uh, and that's actually the next uh, bit of technology okay. that we'll prove. But if you assume for the moment we can do that, uh, because we've built the Hyperloop so far, you're you now sitting down in this pod, your pod, and any other passengers who are with you is going to um, uh, Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Lots of myths around the Hyperloop, so let me address, if I can, some of the sure. myths. Uh, will your face peel off? <laughs> um, no, Emily, it won't. Um, that is the single uh, 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 biggest question I guess asked. You go on the internet, it's your face will peel off. And my answer to that is, look, if you've been on an airplane... Uh, airplanes start stationary, they accelerate at, at 0.25 G, they, they go to 500 miles an hour, they slow down and they stop. Your face doesn't peel off on an airplane. I just described the Hyperloop. Now, what's the difference? Well, the r- airplanes go up in the air, not because they want to leap over tall buildings like Superman. Uh, what Airplanes go up in the air to get low pressure, so they're more fuel efficient. Well, we bring the sky down to the ground. So the, the air pressure in our Hyperloop that we built in Nevada is at about um, uh, 100 pascals, which is equivalent to the air pressure at about 200,000 feet. So it's a sort of four or five nines vacuum, a 99.999. No, no people have been okay. in it yet. Although, and I'm going to do a live test on this podcast. Okay? okay. No people have been in it because you need a safety certificate. Right. But let's say, so here's, you didn't know I was going to ask you this. Okay. <laughs> Let's say I we had done 100 tests of the Hyperloop on a test track and we put sheep in there, we put animals in there, sure. they were absolutely fine and nothing happened and we proved that we can do it. And then I said to you, there are eight seats in the, in the, in the first Hyperloop and a chance to make history of being the first person in the world to um, uh, travel on the Hyperloop and I'm going to offer you one seat. Emily, would you... On that ticket. I'm an MBA, of course I don't want that would. Like a, Good answer. I'm glad you said that, otherwise this podcast would have gone down. Yeah, and the point is that 70-80% of people say yes, 20% of people say God no, uh, and that's okay. That's, you know, with any new technology, autonomous cars, no way I'm not letting sure. go of the steering wheel. Um, but there'll be a Yuri Gagarin of Hyperloop, mm-hmm. my analogy. And no people have been in it uh, yet. You need regulatory approval. Mm-hmm. So we've just won a project in India, Mumbai, Pune, 150 million people. It's currently a four-and-a-half-hour journey. We'll do it in 20-something minutes. Uh, got announced by our chairman, Richard Branson, uh, with um, Prime Minister Modi, uh, and for Maharashtra State, which is the second most populous state in India, um, 112 million people. That will could well be the world's first hyperloop. depends on how quickly people in the Middle East move. As part of the process of building the Hyperloop, you work with the transport regulator, like any new mode of transportation, flying cars, mm-hmm. autonomous cars, and you have to get a safety certificate. And so there's about a 12 to 18 month period of regulatory testing. Once you get a safety certificate, you, you're approved to build. Safety certificates and regulatory approvals are regional. So there's one for Europe, pretty much. And we'll see what happens when the UK leaves uh, the European Union. But let's assume there's one for Europe. 
the Middle East will often accept a European one, but they do have their own regulatory testing. The US definitely has their own. As, as and what are you regulating it as? As a train? As no, a plane? <laughs> are you rewriting that? That is an excellent question. So that really is a great question, because let me tell you what we don't want to do. We do not want to talk to the train regulator. If we talk to the train regulator, we will be in eight years of discussions. I was with um, Secretary Fox in the U.S., who used to uh, run the Department of Transportation for the U.S. Uh, he's no longer Elaine Chow, if I've got a first name, mm-hmm. which is now the Secretary of Transportation. But now he's no longer in government. He could, he, he could be on panels with us, and I interviewed him. And, and he made this point. In fact, this is a, this is videos on our website. He, uh, he made the point that the, one of the problems that autonomous cars had is that they actually called themselves autonomous cars. So the car regulator instantly uh, went to them. And there is a, there's a, a series of regulations that are to do with cars. Now, in our case, if, if the train regulator comes to us, they're going to ask us where the guard is. Right. They're going to ask us about the driver. They're going to ask us about the signal box. They're going to ask us about the timetable. Because they have, you know, years, well, in the case of the train, they've got over 200 years' worth of regulatory uh, rules and approvals. And there's, there's hundreds of safety cases. What happens if Mr. Smith gets on but gets his umbrella right. caught in the door? Uh, what happens if Mrs. Smith gets on but her dog is still on the platform and she's inside and the door's closed? I mean, all these things are really important, mm. particularly to Mrs. Smith and her <laughs> dog. I think the umbrella's going to be okay. But what we've said is we want a new form of regulation. So in the case of the European Union, DG Move, which is the uh, European entity responsible for setting transport regulations for Europe, want uh, to try and get a hyperloop going in Europe in a host nation so that they can be proactive to get ahead of the curve to start to define the regulatory environment as opposed to take an existing one and apply it. Now, one of the big advantages we've got, which Princess High Speed Rail doesn't have, is that we can actually design the technology to meet the safety case. High speed rail already exists, mm-hmm. so then you have to you have to prove that your product meets the safety case. Right. So, in the Middle East, our customer uh, has been RTA, which is the Road Transport Authority of Dubai. They're a regulator, so we're saying, well, how would you want the Hyperloop to behave? So we actually design the technology to meet the safety case. And so that's an, uh, one of the great advantages of new technology. Fantastic. So I wanted to switch to um, the Middle East and India, which have been well in advance. I mean, the UK is still arguing about HS2 crossrail, whereas more emerging markets mm. are really leapfrogging, leapfrogging that. And is it going to be those economies that get there first? Why is it so much easier mm. there? And I guess... At what point are we going to see the London or Oxford to Edinburgh hyperloop? Yeah, you know, you know, this is obviously a you know MBA audience, an alumni audience, maybe as students of history, we can look back and see patterns. And you think about transport innovations and the West versus the East. They were all in the West. I mean, I talked about you know George Stevenson, eighteen fourteen, created the train. Uh, I like to joke that if he came back to life today and saw HS two. Uh, he would point at it and say, that's a train, because it basically, it's basically the same. It's a better train, but it's yeah. still a train. And then, um, of course, we had cars in the late 19th um, uh, century. Um, we we had airplanes, 1903, Kitty Hawk Beach, North Carolina, first uh, plane, the Wright Brothers. You could argue that we then had the next really big leap forward. Everything incrementally improved consistently, but the next big leap forward was, was arguably the 
arguably the U.S. interstate system, which mm-hmm. in in nineteen fifties was completed and produced thirty five percent of the growth of the U.S. was directly attributable to the U.S. interstate system. And since then, for a while, we had Concord. Mm-hmm. Was it a plane? It, it, it sort of seemed like it, 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 it sort of was a plane, but it was definitely something different. And of course, that's probably the only example in history where technology has gone backwards. Yeah. So, so now we've had nothing for a while, and all these systems are slowly getting gummed up, and they're getting slower, and various reasons. But travel is awful. Travel is awful, and getting worse now. When I spoke to, um, there's an organization in India called NITI IR, the National Institute for the Transformation of India, run by a very visionary, uh, it's a commercial organization that reports directly to the Prime Minister. And it's run by a very visionary man called Amitabh Kant. And what Amitabh said is, India will do this before the West. And the reason is the West will be slow, we've talked about that. But more importantly, we have a, we are on a mission to uh, bring India up to date and actually, we've learned a very valuable lesson in, uh, in telecoms, and that is leapfrog, the word you use, leapfrog. India went from telegraph poles to 4G in a very short period of time. And by the way, very low-cost handsets with very low-cost calling plans. Mm-hmm. I was in Mumbai recently as part of the uh, deal uh, that we've announced, and there are parts of Mumbai that you get a better 4G signal in than parts of there are many parts of Europe and many parts of the US. I mean, they, the, the 4G signal in India is really good. They understand leapfrog and they understand that this is the way that their country will, will continue to grow. They just released their GDP figures. I saw yesterday India is now the fastest growing economy in the world, overtaking China. They are going to use technology to keep on accelerating. I mean, it is, it is not just an idea. This, it's a government strategy. Dubai, which you know, famously 60 years ago was a, a, a trading on uh, you know, pearl divers and trading by boat, is an unbelievable city. But they, they, they understand, as I uh, said to someone previously, that the eye of the needle is more valuable than the needle, which means that if you can get people to come to you on their way to somewhere else, your economy will grow. A transport network is directly linked to the GDP and the productivity of a nation. We've proven that here in the UK with the London Underground. Now, I'm older than you, Emily. Your podcast viewers uh, uh, can probably tell that from my voice. <laughs> but when I was growing up, area, there used to be London and Greater London. Now it's London. Mm. And the reason is that the, 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 the tube system has extended its tentacles all over London. The definition of London is kind of the tube map. Yeah. So there's a direct correlation for London that the effectiveness of transportation for citizens drives economic growth. Now, in the case of the UK, unfortunately, that sucked the growth away from the north of England. But Amsterdam, Holland understand that with Schiphol and Rotterdam. Dubai understands that. Singapore understand that. And India are in a, in a wonderful position with the, the way their economy is growing. But if they, if they leapfrog their archaic transportation system, where it takes currently four and a half hours to travel from Mumbai to Pune, and can get it down to 20 minutes for 150 million passengers a year, which, by the way, is HS2 volumes, uh, at a price which is less than half of high-speed rail. They're going to have a national competitive advantage. Think of the billions of hours a year the world wastes on travel. And uh, not moving, but stationary travel. And airports, uh, traffic jams... 
So if you can change the lives of a billion people, uh, you can actually change the productivity of that country. And certain countries see that correlation, certain countries don't. The ones that currently don't are the ones that used to, but now are sitting on what they've got. And I believe that some of the most forward-thinking uh, is happening in emerging markets on this subject. So I want to sort of end with a bit more of a kind of personal question. You know, you described in brief your, your career to date, some big technology companies, some startups. Why have you joined so, the Hyperloop? Yeah. Why am I so crazy? No, I mean... I'll I, tell you, I'll, no, I'll answer that question. So you're right, I, I, um, I, I was always the change manager, the disruptor, the troublemaker in the large company, you know, who were... And Carly Fiorina became CEO of HP, Sun Microsystems with a dot in dot com. HP was, as Scott McNeely famously said, the big, dumb, fat, fat happy printer company. So, you know, I led an incubator cross-company team to uh, actually create an internet uh, business inside HP. Uh, then did a couple of startups and then went back, went to Cisco. And last two years at Cisco were trying to create a model for cloud and managed services, so a software-based model for Cisco, because Cisco was, you know, had the highest percentage of any tech company in the world based on pure box revenue. Not a situation now today, and the share price has responded, but yeah, I have, I've got, and now I'm back in the startup. The honest answer to the question is, I had retired two years ago, and I, I was going to dabble and hold a bunch of things, and I got invited to see the Hyperloop, and I went out to Nevada. And I talk to them, and sometimes it's the it's just little things that, that that cause you to make big decisions. And I I looked at this thing and I couldn't get. It. I thought, oh, do I want to work for a transportation company? Oh my god, that's so boring. No, I don't want to do that. And then I looked at it, and I I they were explaining that it's sort of like packet switching. And yeah, there's going to be switches and routers, and there's going to be tubes, and it's direct to destination, and it'll be first mile and last mile. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God, it's not a transportation system. It's not a transportation system. It's a physical version of the Internet. I just described the Internet. Packet switching, data voice video, Hyperloop, people freight cars, high-speed switching, direct-to-destination, on-demand. It will come to your door. The, the, the Uber will come to your door, and it will take you to your destination. You know, autonomous door-to-door -door journeys over huge distances at very high speed. And if it's a physical version of the internet, of course it's a transportation system. But if, if in 20 years' time, the internet isn't a way of moving digital packets very fast down fiber, glass fiber. It, the internet is the biggest disruptor we've ever seen mm -hmm. of all business processes. So you then start thinking, what could the Hyperloop do? And you think about delivering, you know, in India, same-day delivery of parcels in India. Unthinkable. Unthinkable. The ability for a ship to uh, unload at sea and for the uh, Hyperloop to take the packages inland and distribute them around uh, this system we've got today where all the containers go on the dockside and then trucks drive through the city with all the pollution to pick the containers up and drive them out one at a time to go on a freeway system, that all disappears. That all disappears. Um, and so you change freight distribution. The ability to take two airports uh, that are like, um, let's take Heathrow Gatwick. We, we're having to build new runways, and they cost a lot. Uh, 18 billion pounds for Heathrow's third runway. But with Hyperloop, Gatwick is three minutes away. So you can now have virtual airports and have airside connections. So you start thinking of things you could do that you could not, not dream of before because you had a bottleneck. 
That's exactly what the internet did. So my belief, you said it was your last question, so my belief to finish is that in 20 years' time, when, first of all, I hope I really have retired, (laughs) but in 20 years' time, we will actually be talking more about transport-enabled disruption, business model disruption, than about a technology of pods in, 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 in vacuum tubes. Right. And uh, I believe that's the big story here. And um, that's why it's such an exciting time. And that's why I actually came out of retirement, because I thought, I can't watch somebody else do this. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank that was you. a really brilliant conversation. That was fun. Thank Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Oxford Future of Business podcast presented by SAE Business School. Next week, I'm in conversation with Professor Richard Barker and Carter Powers discussing the carbon bubble and the ticking time bomb on the balance sheet of the world's largest companies. Please subscribe on iTunes. And if you want to find out more about what we discussed in today's episode, you can by following the link in the description. The Future of Business podcast was created by Brody, Patrick, Michael Ann, Paris and Emily. Thank you for listening and goodbye.